Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The term forever war is making its way into popular usage. It's usually applied to Afghanistan, Syria and Iraq and the war on terror. But al-Shabaab's bombing of a luxury hotel in Nairobi is a reminder that there is a forever war in the Horn of Africa. And while the Trump administration is showing signs of impatience with the forever wars in Syria and Afghanistan, in the Horn of Africa, they've been ramping things up. With me is Ahmed Samatar, James Wallace Professor of International Studies at McAllister College. We've talked with him about Somalia and the Horn of Africa over the years. Nice to talk with you again, Ahmed Samatar. Good talking to you, Jerome. You know, I was looking at some of the statistics, and I was surprised. I read the news pretty often, but uh, the number of airstrikes that go on in Somalia is uh, has been pretty high. Right? It's been way up that there's uh, 500 U.S. troops in Somalia. There were certainly some, apparently, some U.S. troops in Kenya around uh, Nairobi because they seem to have taken part. Some Navy SEALs took part in, in the, uh, the, the mop-up operation there. Um, what has been going on with the U.S. and the Horn of Africa here? Well, uh, just to start with this and add to your statistics, uh, since 2017, uh, President uh, Trump has, in fact, increased U.S. military action in the Horn of Africa, particularly uh, in Somalia. Uh, 30 airstrikes since 2017, mostly uh, through drone uh, uh, planes. Uh, so there is uh, a serious, uh, I think, acceleration of, of U.S. military action in the area, primarily to deal with al-Shabaab. Uh, but many other things are going on in Kenya and Somalia and uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia, there is some uh, good news of change in, in government and maybe trying to uh, kind of improve politics and citizenship and management of society. Uh, but Somalia continues to be the problem child for East African societies and Horn of Africa. And al-Shabaab is the point of this, uh, and the incompetence and the continuous corruption of what there is of authority in Mogadishu. You know, I'm struck by kind of parallels to Afghanistan with yes. Somalia, because here we have um, there's a central government there that is weak. They're trying to get security forces to take things in their own hand. But there's a there's a big international force that helps out in in Somalia. Um, there seem to be a lot of parallels between the two. Oh yes, uh, the African forces, uh, which are a kind of a regional forces from Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda. And, and few, uh, sorry, Burundi and uh, maybe Djibouti. Uh, there are about 21,000 uh, African forces supported by the United States and the European Union and others through finance and training and things of that kind uh, in, uh, in Somalia, and primarily to deal with al-Shabaab and to help whatever government exists in Mogadishu at any given time in the last uh, really 12, 15 years uh, to sustain itself. Uh, but the kind of a comparison between Afghanistan and Somalia is uh, pretty vivid. They share a number of things. Uh, one, they share uh, that both of them really have governments that are propped up by international forces uh, and by themselves cannot manage their own society. Uh, secondly, they share uh, that American investments in both of them really is deep, particularly, of course, in the case of Afghanistan, which is an older story and maybe more important to the United States strategically. Uh, but uh, both of them uh, are 
are uh, clients of the United States in many ways, uh, and they share the fact that both of them in the t- league table of the international system and countries of the world, they are always at the bottom in terms of corruption. Uh, either Somalia is at the bottom or Afghanistan is at the bottom, but the two of them are usually at the bottom of the international system when it comes to measurements about uh, corruption, deep corruption. Uh, and the final thing is, uh, of course, uh, the fact that the United States has spent a lot of money in both places. In the case of Somalia, the last 10 years, we're looking something close to, if not over $2 billion in one form or another. Some of it humanitarian aid, significant part of it also in addressing uh, this anti-Shabaab kind of a building of security forces. In Afghanistan, we are talking about over a trillion dollars. Uh, that's an enormous drain on United States, States resources, which I think showed themselves uh, both at the failure of those two countries at, still, and the fact that that is money that is not available for rebuilding what's increasingly a degrading American infrastructure. I just came back from a uh, visit to the United Arab Emirates about uh, a week ago and traveled across uh, that small country in all the uh, principalities or different uh, components of the Emirates. And it is stunning, the difference between our country here in the United States and what's happening there. The highways, uh, I mean, they are uh, 21st century highways there. Uh, We're looking at 1950s highways here and 1960s. Uh, And when you come back from from the United Arab Emirates and come back to the United States, it is almost at the airports, at highways, all these kinds of things, as if the United States is increasingly becoming a second-rate country compared to those societies. And maybe part of the reason is because we are not spending the kind of money we need to upgrade our own country and putting it into other places. I'm talking with Ahmed Samatar. He's from McAllister College, and we're talking about the forever war in Somalia. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be talking with Human Rights Watch about some circumstances in Asia that uh, deserve our attention. And I wanted to ask a, a question about progress, because it seems like progress is so elusive in Somalia. It seems non-existent to somebody who probably sits here and reads the paper. But today in the New York Times, um, Major General Mark Hicks, a commander of the 1,200 special uh, operations troops that are deployed in Africa for the United States, was quoted as saying, there's a narrative out there that says we're not making progress, we're just stuck. I understand that. I'm sympathetic because progress is slow and nonlinear. But I think you'll see that progress is being made nonetheless. Is there some evidence of progress out there? I am not sure about that. Uh, I think that if you just look at the question of security and stability, uh, Al-Shabaab still has anywhere between seven to eight, maybe even as much as 9,000 uh, young people, uh, armed young people on their call. That's their strength. Uh, And they can attack any place. Uh, They they decide to do so, as they have just done uh, in Nairobi, Kenya, at the heart of the uh, wealthiest district uh, in Kenya, in Nairobi. Uh, So after all of these years, over a $2 billion United States money involved in this, in rebuilding Somali society in Mogadishu, uh, here it is. Here is the, here's the verdict. Uh, so I think I, I'm not sure whether there is really any progress. I think there's a spinning wheel that in the process also uses a lot of resources that don't go too far. Uh, that does not mean that there are no uh, moments here and there in which something worthwhile has been done. 
But the totality of this, uh, if you look at Somalia in 90, you know, 15 years ago, and you look at it now, uh, the uh, movement of progress is, is extremely minimal. And you worry uh, about this. And then the second point I want to make uh, is that uh, the international forces, the African forces that are in Somalia now, about 21,000 of them, are going to be withdrawn in 2020. That's next year. Uh, and uh, there is really no seriously credible Somali security forces that can take over this. They can't even manage that while the international forces are there. Can you imagine what how brittle they will be after the international forces move out in 2020? You know, it's interesting because going back to Afghanistan, the Trump administration is interested, more interested than other U.S. administrations in having a dialogue and, and peace talks with the Taliban. Um, in in Somalia, no one talks about talking to al-Shabaab. I, I, are they, you know, too al-Qaeda-like to have a talk with? Or how do you, how do you deal with uh, negotiations? If you're going to have no yes. troops, you might as well negotiate. Yes. Well, I made an argument uh, over uh, six years ago uh, that there really are three kinds of al-Shabaab. Uh, they are not just one in terms of the inner logic of this and the identity of this. There are those uh, who use al-Shabaaz as a way of entering politics. Uh, and you have just heard, I think, a few weeks ago, one of their top leaders decided to do that. And in the end, that turned to a fiasco, which costed the UN representative, chief representative in Mogadishu, to be uh, declared as persona non grata by the Somali yeah, government, Somalia government. We need to distinguish that from Somaliland. Uh, and, 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 and the second group uh, are ones that really are interested in development. They want to see some fundamental change in the quality of life for people in, in Somalia. And then the third group are militant, uh, I think, hardcore Islamists uh, whose project is really to take over the whole country and then try to run the country through some kind of a militant Sharia-based interpretation of governance. These are the three kind of groups. And I think if a sophisticated both Somali and international coalition politics needs to move in that direction and do that kind of a work. But Somalia now has become a place so easy for predators, whether they are advisees or people who want to advise them, or whether they are people who are interested in quick gain. Somalia has become such an easy prey for all kinds of people that I think it is going to be increasingly difficult to get to the bottom of this. But I want to add one more point on this, Jerome, and that is there is a different kind of a country in the north I have tried to stress this in earlier conversations with you, called Somaliland. Right. It's very secure. It has a very capable professional security forces, and nothing like this ever happens there. And they have just a year ago, a, few, a year and a half ago or so, uh, come out of a nationally-based presidential elections. One person, one vote, coast to coast. That has never happened in Somalia, ever. Uh, so uh, the international community that wants to seriously invest resources in the Horn of Africa should give special attention to Somaliland, which has proven to rule itself, which has proven to be a secure place, and which is improving its governance. 
I'm talking with Ahmed Samater, James Wallace Professor of International Studies at McAllister College, and we're talking about uh, what's been happening in Somalia and the um, the forever war that's been going on in the Horn of Africa. Um, you know, I wanted to say something about Kenya and why Kenya is a target and about um, Somalis that are in Kenya. A lot of them are in refugee camps in Kenya. Um, is Kenya um, unusually uh, represented in the in the African Union troops? Is there something about it that is that makes it uh, an easier target for Al Shabaab? Well, Kenya's uh, troops, in the context of the twenty one thousand African troops, is not that big. Um, the, the Ugandans are very significant, the Ethiopians are significant, the Burundians are significant, more significant. Uh, but uh, where the vulnerability for Somalis comes with regard to the Kenyan state uh, is that uh, there is a significant Somali community in Kenya. Some of it are Kenyans, and they are generational Kenyans who live particularly in the northeastern part of Kenya, which, if you remember from the news, uh, in, in, if, uh, uh, I think a year or so ago, maybe in 2000, and maybe two years ago, uh, in 2000. Uh, and, uh, and, and 16, uh, the, one of the major uh, universities, or the university really in northern Kenya, uh, was attacked uh, by al-Shabaab, and uh, hundreds of students were massacred there, mostly Christian uh, students uh, who, who were attending the university. But the large Somali community, both Kenyan Somalis and Somalis who have uh, fled the chaos, violent chaos in Somalia in the last uh, 25 years, uh, who live, some of them, in refugee camps, but many of them also uh, work in, in, in various cities in Kenya, in Nairobi, in uh, Mombasa, in other places, Garissa, other places. They become very vulnerable uh, suspects uh, as Somalis and as Muslims, and therefore, and at one level, the Kenyans have a right to, to suspect them, but the Somalis also have a right not to be put into the same camp as these terrorist groups. And that is a major problem for Kenyan government and a major problem for the Somalis who live in Kenya. And the, the, the Dadaab refugee camp was the biggest in the world for many years, uh, the yeah. one in uh, Kenya that had so, so, so many Somali refugees. And I understand it's down to about 250,000 because the Kenyans are worried about security there. They're constantly trying to get people to go back to Somalia, have been somewhat successful. And there are stories about... Uh, you know, young men kind of uh, taking off from the camp and, and getting kidnapped. And uh, there's all sorts of wild things that go on yeah. that are – these people are going to be in considerably more danger now after this terrorist attack in Nairobi. There will be some kind of crackdown on 250,000 people in a refugee camp. Yes. Well, that refugee camp is not the world's biggest yet at this time now. There are others, but it is one of the biggest still. Uh, and it's a, it's a very harsh living conditions. I visited there, uh, and there are generations now of Somalis, some of, many of them born in there in these last 25 years. Uh, and uh, the, the desperation can push some of them to become easy recruits 
for Al-Shabaab, for example. Uh, but there is also the problem of the Somalis who live in Kenya, in cities like Nairobi, Mombasa, and others becoming suspect. Uh, and in the process, at one time, in fact, the Kenyan government uh, tried to uh, put them in some areas and compounds and uh, soccer stadiums and things like that. Uh, there are Kenyans who are sometimes have been talking very seriously about building a kind of a big barrier like maybe Trump's wall type uh, in the long, long uh, uh, you know, border between Kenya and, and proper Somalia. Uh, so uh, this is a very flammable context, I think. And, and I think part of the problem also now in these last few years uh, is that the Kenyans now have troops inside Somalia. Uh, they try to create a buffer between Kenya proper and the Somali, so, uh, you know, uh, Somali side, Somalia side, and create a buffer. That's why they send the troops into Kismayo, which they took over uh, the major Somalia port there. Uh, that whole area is very combustible, and there are a variety of issues that come together. Not least one of them, of course, uh, is average Somalis uh, who are caught up in this, and their conditions and circumstances are very dire, and they become easy, both for al-Shabaab, either to intimidate them or recruit them or maybe even kill them, and, of course, for the Kenyan security forces who see most Somalis essentially as the other. You know, it it sounds like such a long-term morass, and the U.S. seems to have no strategy right now but military. But it it sounds like the the removal of these African Union troops is going to to force or, you know, renegotiation of some kind. Uh, Do you have any idea that the Trump administration has got some some game on this, that they've got a strategy here? I don't think so. And I don't know of anyone who really knows uh, about that. Uh, This is part of the great chaotic uh, bureaucratic administration of the White House uh, and here in our own country now under this uh, government. Uh, But I think uh, 2020, in the case of Somalia, uh, would be the moment of truth. If the 20,000 African Union troops supported by the UN and the United States and the European Union, uh, if those are withdrawn, and some in Somalia have been arguing for that, uh, then uh, we have a new day there, and whether the country will then be falling over the cliff even more, and a new civil war will take place, which is quite likely, uh, since the Somali government doesn't have the kind of a serious security forces that can maintain law and order uh, in Somalia, uh, yeah, as they have done in, in Somaliland. Somaliland, they have taken care of security issues. Uh, so uh, the reckoning of 2020 is very serious. And I am not sure, and I haven't seen anywhere, that either the international community or the United States have any strategic uh, laid out plan of how to deal with this, either to keep the international forces there for whatever they are worth, or uh, something else to replace. But the ultimate, I think, uh, drama, in my opinion, and I have said this in your program before, the ultimate answer to all of this would be uh, to engage uh, the building of a serious, legitimate Somali government with legitimate, powerful national security forces that uh, can uh, manage and preserve and maintain rule of law. That is the response to, uh, to al-Shabaab, legitimate, uh, capable state. 
And we don't have that yet. We don't have the, the, the Somalis don't have the leadership for that yet, uh, nor they have the political consensus to build something like that. But the lesson, I think, the positive lesson is what has been happening in Somaliland. Ahmed Samatar is James Wallace Professor of International Studies at McAllister College. Thanks a lot for joining me and talking about the forever war in the Horn of Africa. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the deterioration of freedom of expression in Myanmar. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The asylum case of Rafa Mohammed, uh, Rahaf Mohammed from Saudi Arabia caused an international sensation. The 18-year-old woman fled her abusive family and got stuck in Thailand, where it looked for a moment like she may, might face involuntary return to Saudi Arabia. The attention of her case eventually got her asylum in Canada. We're going to talk about some of the hard lessons of this case with Phil Robertson. He is Asia Deputy Asia Division Deputy Director for Human Rights Watch. Nice to meet you, Phil. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, you know, I picked up the uh, Guardian today, and I saw that Thailand has responded to its uh, criticism in this case, and the immigration chief pledged a reversal of the country's notoriously harsh treatment of refugees. He said refugees would no longer be returned home involuntarily. What do you make of the immigration chief's statement? Well, it would be great if it happens. Uh, uh, the the immigration commissioner Surachet Hakpan uh, was speaking last night at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Thailand in Bangkok and and said that and you know I mean we hope that happens but we have seen uh, over the past four years Uyghurs sent back to China Han Chinese who are scheduled to go to Canada sent back we've sent Gulenists sent by Thailand to Turkey. You know, Cambodian human rights activists with UNHCR credentials uh, sent back to Cambodia into the harm's way. So uh, this is a case where we really need to see action to before we believe it. Now, Thailand does not sign the uh, refugee convention. They are not a, one of the few countries that is not a signatory to that. That's correct. And, and this allows them the necessary flexibility to do what they want. And the current government has essentially been dealing refugees back to authoritarian governments uh, for considerations that we don't know because, of course, these are discussions that are going on behind closed doors. The latest is uh, the case of Hakim Al-Arabi, who is a Bahrain uh, soccer player. And this person, someone who is a refugee in Australia, but he's now been detained in Thailand where he went with his wife on his honeymoon. And uh, they're talking about sending him back to Bahrain. <laughs> well, um 
he could, if he wanted action, he could do something about this case right now. Right. Well, that's exactly right. We could, he could say, we're going to take this into the court. We're going to say we're not going to contest this. We're not going to send him, send him back to anywhere, and we'll just turn him over to the Australians. The Australian foreign minister was in Thailand last week uh, demanding exactly that. Now, Thailand for many years has hosted uh, refugees from Burma. They, um, there's been 100,000 refugees on their border for uh, 30 years. Is that um, uh, did is that generous? Did they give generous treatment to these people? Is there circumstances where they are sympathetic? Well, I think that certainly Thailand has allowed for uh, the Burmese refugees to come, and and before that, of course, the the Cambodian refugees fleeing the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese boat people and and Lao Mong, many who went to places like Wisconsin. Uh, so there has been an an ongoing Thai willingness to receive refugees. But uh, in this particular case, uh, the, the Burmese refugees, we don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, the idea is somehow that they will be allowed to uh, go back to Burma. Uh, we hope that happens, but some of them may not want to go. Some of them may want to stay in Thailand and work as migrant workers. And this hasn't been worked out yet on how they're going to resolve this this final major uh, border refugee crisis in Thailand. Those uh People, the Burmese in Thailand, uh, they never got status to work in Thailand. They always had to stay in their camps. It was a technically refugees are not allowed to work. Um, the reality is, of course, that many of them do work. They sort of sneak out the back of the camp, and there's agricultural interests or other, even uh, garment factories up in Mesot, where some of these areas are. That uh, you know they're allowed to work there, or, or they're they're. I can't say they're allowed to work. They are people looking the other way. Right. So. It would be quite easy to convert these people to migrant workers with, with registration status in Thailand and, and end it that way. But Thailand is still sort of dragging its feet and we hope that you know this new policy that's announced by the immigration commissioner uh, comes to fruition. Uh, we'll, we'll try to encourage it but I'm not expecting that um, it's going to be all uh, sort of sunshine and rainbows. Uh, if they signed the Refugee Convention, would you think sunshine and rainbows were coming? What does it take? Well, I think that they're not going to uh, sign any refugee convention until the, the last group of these Burmese refugees in these camps go back. You know, what they don't want to do is they don't want to be caught out uh, having ratified something and then uh, be criticized for not doing the right thing. I think that uh, there is discussion about – uh, letting, for instance, children who have been refugee children who have been held in immigration detention to, to allow them to be let go. Uh, there's other sort of reforms nipping around the edges. Uh, we need to see and we need to, frankly, push to make sure that uh, these things happen. Phil Robertson is with the Asia Division of Human Rights Watch. We're talking about a few of the issues there. And let's swing over to uh, Burma itself, Myanmar. I know you've got a report on freedom of expression coming out at Human Rights Watch soon. Can you give us the lay of the land in Burma right now? I, I think everyone looks at Burma through, you know, with the rose-colored glasses after there was a, there was an election and Aung San Suu Kyi was able to uh, to get into power. Um, but it sounds like like freedoms like freedom of expression are getting dialed back. Well, that's our concern, frankly. Uh, what we see is a persecution of journalists for raising uh, issues or covering stories that the government doesn't want covered. And 
the prominent case of the two Reuters journalists who have been sentenced uh, to seven years in prison for violating the Official Secrets Act uh, is certainly the, the most prominent of these cases. But we have many other cases that we're seeing where journalists, uh, for instance, have violated uh, Article 66D of the Telecommunications Act, which is a very broad, vaguely written article that allows maximum discretion for officials to charge journalists. Uh, these these are time and time again. They're the the laws that we expected Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy government to take off the books because they have an absolute majority in the parliament. It just hasn't happened. You have the same rights abusing laws in most cases that we had during the military governments, and they're still being used. The reality is within within Burma today, uh, the military is ascendant politically. Uh, they have uh, surprisingly been able to turn this. Uh, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity they perpetrated against the Rohingya in, in late 2017 into political support. And, uh, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, unfortunately, seems increasingly involved in a cover-up of military atrocities. Uh, it's an amazing turn of events. I wonder if we could just mention a little more about the Reuters journalists, because they were covering the Rohingya. They were doing something very specific when that the authorities were objecting to. They did not want this kind of reporting done in the country. Right. What they were they were covering a massacre of ten uh, Rohingya men uh, at a village called Indin, and uh, the military has now admitted that that massacre did in fact take place and has prosecuted uh, the platoon that did it. But at the same time, uh, the police entrapped these two journalists, saying that they were giving them documents and arresting him as soon as they walked out of a rendezvous at the restaurant. Uh, the men never even looked at the documents. And it later turned out that uh, a police major said, uh, you know, I was instructed by my superiors to entrap these two people. Rather than the court throwing out the case, uh, the, the police prosecuted the major and sent him to prison. He's disappeared. And uh, the, the, the case against these two men uh, continued. What's quite clear is that the Myanmar judiciary is not Independent, it is still controlled by the, uh, the mil- uh, by the military and by the civilian government in a way that you know harks back to the decades that it faced under military rule, where it was essentially uh, the legal enforcer for whatever the military wanted to do. Well, how does the military, if this, if it's popular to do this ethnic cleansing and uh, super nationalism route that they've taken? How do they deal with the Rohingya that are now in Bangladesh? There's been a lot of talk that they're going to allow them back in, and there's all these attempts repeatedly to um, bring these people back in. But they've they've made them stateless. They're out, and they're afraid to come back. Well, they yeah they I mean the key part is of course they they don't have citizenship because they that's been denied to them uh, by the 1982 Citizenship Act. They've been they had citizenship previously, and it was stripped from them. But the other fact is that there's a bilateral agreement between Myanmar and uh, uh, Bangladesh to send these people back. But there's there's basically no provisions being made to allow them to go back to their homes, to allow them to go back into areas where they originally came from, uh, to enable them to have freedom of movement so that they would be able to uh, do work to have access to education, to have access to health services. This is a one-way ticket to – close down camps that the government will essentially ring with uh, barbed wire and, and surround with police and military and say that these people are living in a village when in really fact it's a, it's a lockdown open-air gulag. What's happened to the Rohingya is um, so clear-cut. 
it seems so obvious that these people have been uh, persecuted and are uh, are you know there's a genocide going on. These people are being extinguished from the country of Burma. Uh, what what about the international reaction? It's just never been very forceful. It's never been never been something. It's never been a never again moment. Well, that's the problem, really. I mean, we're not getting the kind of pressure we need to get accountability for the military. We've we've seen some sanctions by the U.S. and by the European Union, but uh, you know, the, the the U.S. State Department did a very comprehensive report, which it was supposed to uh, release with a with a big uh, hoo ha in, in Washington D.C. And later, it was decided, you know, to sort of sly, quietly sort of release it. I mean, it seems that everybody is trying to downplay the kind of atrocities that took place uh, to essentially allow this to continue. Uh, that's the fundamental problem that, you know, we're, we need to be looking at an, an international arms embargo against the, the Burmese military. We need to be looking at uh, sanctions and efforts to try to uh, take, take some of these people into uh, international justice mechanisms, including the, the senior commander of the Burmese military, uh, Min Aung Hlaing. But none of that is happening. Uh, you know, we see a sort of competitive de-escalation of pressure uh, against uh, the Burmese military that is very, very concerning. What, what do you mean competitive de-escalation of pressure? It almost seems like you mean there's a, there's a rivalry to, to back down? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of focus on, you know, uh, you know, Myanmar being the sort of place where there's a lot of raw, raw materials. This is an area where if we, you know, the Europeans and the U.S. saying if we back down, China might step up. Uh, Japan, for instance, uh, trying to find succor with uh, the, the military and the, and the civilian government in any way they can to sort of offset China. It's become, uh, once again, caught up in, in big power politics and, and international trade. And Aung San Suu Kyi is in power but has lost power. I think that she has uh, really sort of lost the plot. Um, you know, she will – if she runs again in 2020 when the next election is due, she'll probably win again. But with a reduced majority because the ethnic peoples of Burma have decided that she's not going to stand with them. You know, everybody supported her in 2015. So there, there was a there massive landslide against, against the Burmese military to sort of, a, a, you know, a real break with the past. Unfortunately, she didn't get that message and, and has increasingly become quite conservative and unwilling to take on these issues of uh, human rights and a deepening of democracy in the country. I'm talking with Phil Robertson from the Asia Division of Human Rights Watch, and I wanted to talk about one other issue before you go. And uh, Carlos Ghosn, the uh, head of Nissan, the jailed head of Nissan in Japan, is something that has come on uh, the Human Rights Watch radar. Tell us something about uh, his case in particular, because I think most people, when they think of a a jailed... uh, multi-millionaire CEO, they, they think this guy would have a lot of clout and would be able to, to do whatever he wants. He wouldn't need somebody from Human Rights Watch talking about his case. Well, yeah. What I would say is we don't know, you know at the outset whether he's innocent or guilty of the charges he's been, been laid against him. But what has happened is his case has illustrated the very, very problematic practices of the Japanese uh, judicial system where you know people can be held in pretrial detention uh, when without access to lawyers uh, for up to twenty three days uh, 
based on a charge that's laid against them. And then if, at the end of that period, if you lay a new charge against the person, you get another 23 days. And there's been a, an effort through these processes to try to coerce confessions by the Japanese prosecutors and the police. You know, Carlos Ghosn is uh, in the middle of this cycle where he has now been charged three times. Uh, the concern is, is, is there going to be another charge brought against him to continue to hold him? You know, pretrial detention is, is, a, is a fundamental issue of, of basic uh, fairness of law. You know, he should have access to bail. He should have access to his lawyer. He should not be interrogated without access to his lawyer. And all these things are happening in Japan. It sounds like the Japanese make the case of, well, we're afraid if we give him bail, he will uh, tamper with evidence. They say things like that. Well, I mean, then, then have the bail hearing, have the, have the discussion about that. But it's not even gotten to that point. Uh, the reality is that the prosecutors want to hold these people and try to coerce confessions because they want to maintain a, a high level of convictions. And if you look actually at the number of confessions connected to uh, judicial trials in, in, in Japan, they're quite high because the system is geared towards that. But the way it works is it basically uh, runs, runs right over human rights. Is there anyone advocating for a change in Japan? Is there, is this, this sounds like a deeply ingrained um, procedure that, that, I don't know, does it have popular support to change it? Well, we're starting to try to rally support to do that. Uh, I think that you know, this, having a high-profile case like this opens the door to greater scrutiny of what is actually happening. And I think if we're successful, we will be able to get a series of reforms. I mean, we have had success on a number of human rights issues, whether it be LGBT rights or our foster children's system or things like that in, in Japan. So I think with the appropriate uh, application of pressure and uh, you know, research to sort of show how these abuses are taking place, I think we can probably get somewhere. Phil Robertson is the Asia Division Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch. Thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll look for your report on freedom of expression in Myanmar. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, and we'll talk about a soccer exchange between Chicago and France. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism series, where we feature people who make the world a better place. Today, we're going to talk with two organizations that are collaborating on something I think you'll find really interesting. Sport Den Laville has been serving disadvantaged youth with sports and job training since 1998 in France. And also with us is Urban Initiatives. They've been doing essentially the same thing here in Chicago for many years. And Jim Dower is the executive director there. And Pascal Remy is with Sport Den Laville. Great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jerome. Uh, um, Pascal, first of all, tell us a little bit about Sport Den Laville because it's quite an operation. You've been doing this since 1998, and you've had a lot of success with sports and job training in France. What, what kind of things are you doing? 
Well, uh, Sport dans la Ville was uh, created, yes, 20 years ago, and we are using sports to get in contact with underserved uh, children in France in different neighborhoods. And the relationship that is really um, establishing between our team and those kids enable us to follow them, to guide them until they find a job, sports, Soccer, basketball, dance have been tremendously helpful uh, to get the trust of those children. So that's what we have been doing. And we are helping today over 6,500 young people in France. And this results, I mean, you use sports as a tool for job training, for, um, for success in life, for building skills. How does that work? Well, we have a group of uh, wonderful um, partners, corporate partners, and we are able, uh, thanks to those partnerships, to establish bridges between those uh, young kids, young adults, and uh, the corporation. The corporations offer many professional opportunities to those uh, teenagers, like uh, summer jobs, uh, internships. Uh, so that's the way um, these uh, partnerships help us to um, guide those children uh, until they find a job. Pascal Remy is with Sport Dan Laville, and also with us is Jim Dower, Executive Director of Urban Initiatives, who's doing about the same thing in Chicago. Thanks for being here, Jim. Uh, really, really happy to be here. Thank you. You are the founder of Urban Initiatives, and you did it um, back in Cabrini-Green in about 20 years ago as well. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we're actually celebrating um, our 15th anniversary this year, which is super exciting. Um, you know, we really started out as an organization using soccer as a way to get kids excited about the classroom, um, bring parents onto our team, and really celebrate um, all the great young people and the great young families that, that were in that neighborhood. Um, we soon found out that more schools were, were looking for programs like ours, and, and we began to expand. Today, we use soccer as a tool to bring students onto our team in the very young ages of second, third, and fourth grade, and actually stay with them into the fifth through eighth grade, and then into high school, and then supporting them as they start to design their college and career pathway. So you are doing essentially the same thing as Sport and Laville, and now you're teaming up and doing um, an interesting project over the next year. And Pascal, uh, explain what you're doing. The Women's World Cup is coming to France in July and June next year, and you've got some ideas about what to do. Yes, we are very excited. Um, we will have at uh, Sport dans la Ville during uh, the Women's World Cup about 300 uh, young people from around the world on our campus, and um, they will be able to play together soccer, to visit France, to take part in many different activities, and we are very, very happy because the two semifinal and the final of the World Cup are happening in Lyon, so those children, uh, all from underserved neighborhoods, will have the opportunity uh, to watch those games, so this is very exciting. And so how many of the young people are coming from Urban Initiatives? So we're going to bring a total of uh, eight players and two 
um, young leader chaperones. Uh, it's, it's so a total of ten. So that sounds uh, really exciting. I mean, that'd be a terrific opportunity. I know you're a huge fan of World Cup competitions yourself, Jim. Yep, uh, yep. Explain what you think young people will get out of being at one and playing around with other kids. Sure, sure. So I think, you know, as, as our young people in Chicago become um, young adults and, and are true global citizens here, I think having the opportunity for them to participate and connect with other young people and really celebrating global unity, celebrating um, female leadership and women in sports is something that I think is really important to our programming to be able to go abroad and, and, and have them have those experiences. I think we'll get them excited about the way they can impact their own spaces and places that they're ultimately going to grow into in life. How do you pick who goes? Ooh, that's a good question. We actually have a wonderful committee um, who are going to be reading a series of essays. So all of uh, the young people and staff who are going to attend this amazing experience are going to go through a series of essays, uh, writing really why they want to go, what they want to get out of it, how they are going to bring that experience back to Chicago, and then share that with their school, with their friends, with their family. Wow. And um, Pascal, explain where all the other 300 people are coming from who are coming to this uh, thing you're doing. Well, they are coming from all over the world. Um, they all belong to non-for-profit part of Street Football, Football World, which is an international organization. And they will do children will be coming from South America, from Africa, from uh, East Europe, and also, as Jim mentioned, from the U.S. and from Chicago. So it's very exact, exciting to have... Uh, this uh, small uh, world in Lyon. We are very happy. And the games that they'll play amongst themselves, uh, is there a a tournament, a competition? Is it... uh, I always find it interesting, like... uh, it's a competitive thing, but you kind of learn to collaborate at the same time. It's uh, it's an interesting notion. Yes, and the rules uh, will be what uh, we we call uh, Football 3. So before the game, the teams are going to decide together what the three major rules of the game will be. For example, they will decide that when a team um, marks a goal, everybody is going to clap. You know, so they, it will be what we call football three rules. So it gives an overall very positive uh, spirit. Uh, to the tournament for everyone, bringing respect and mutual understanding. Well, that sounds great. And then how many uh, games do the young people get to see? Oh, that we'll probably see um, the two semifinals and hopefully the finals, so at least two. Well, it'll be great for uh, the young people from Urban Initiatives because uh, the USA is going to win because it's got an awesome team and (laughs) they always win. That's what I'm hearing over here, Pascal. I, I don't know what the word well, is in France. <laughs> well, I think France is going to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this sounds like a great collaboration, and I, I get the feeling like there is already collaboration between uh, the various groups out there who are building uh, better young people with sports. It sounds like soccer has it going on, huh, Jim. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I think that Chicago is a global sports city. We've, we've, we've won championships in so many different ways, 
And it's something that I think every member of Chicago, no matter what part of the city you're from, can, can unite around. And using that power of sport to celebrate all the unique and, and fantastic young people in the city, I think is something that you're absolutely right. More and more organizations are recognizing and, and celebrating and unifying around. So it's, it's, it's a good call. And uh, Pascal, this is a, a great thing for Sport Dan LaVille. How do people get in touch with Sport Dan LaVille or get more information about what you're doing? Well, um, you can go on our website, sportdanlaville.com, and, uh, or uh, find more uh, through uh, Urban Initiatives because we are start- starting this great uh, collaboration and uh, the two teams have been working um, closely together. And Jim, your website is? We are urbaninitiatives.org. Easy to, easy to understand. Yep. Well, this has been uh, wonderful to learn about, and I hope people will um, get involved with both your organizations. And thanks for joining us, Jim Dower, Executive Director of Urban Initiatives, and uh, Pascal Remy from Sport Dan Laville, all the way from France. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. Au revoir. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll preview the World Economic Forum in Davos with The Atlantic's Steve Clemens. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.